kingdom that is coming, a God who is sovereign and working all things for your glory and summing all things up under Christ in that great and glorious day when our King returns to reclaim what is His. We thank you that your word comprehensively meets us in the dark moments of our life in this world where sin seems to overwhelm us and circumstances seem as though they'll overtake us. And yet we are reminded we stand in line of all of those who know you. These are not things that express your displeasure, but are your means of shaping us and increasing our faith and increasing your glory in our eyes and in our heart. And in so increasing our hope and increasing our understanding of your love for us in Christ Jesus, which has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so we thank you that you have met us in every condition of life to sustain us by faith and to point us to our hope in Christ. We pray now as we open your word together and as we prepare for your table that you would fulfill this ministry of strengthening our hearts by grace to see Christ, to better love him, to better walk with him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. As we continue our look at the church of Laodicea, you might, your Bible might just automatically open to that page on Sunday morning. Uh, we've been here for a little while, but we hope to finish up uh, between this week and next week as we come to the end of his message and the last of his messages to the seven churches, because Laodicea is, of course, the last church to reference in those he has been addressing for us over the last several months. I want to introduce uh, this morning uh, by noting just this, simply, that no God ever conceived of in the heart of mind or man uh, as like the God of Scripture, so infinitely glorious in his being, so absolutely holy in his nature, and so infinitely rich in mercy and grace as God is, as he's revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, all of man's conceptions of God, he's either morally corrupt, much like the Greek gods who were really no better than humans, just bigger and stronger, or he's capricious and unpredictable like the God of Islam, who no one really knows how it'll turn out in the end. You just hope it works in your advantage and you won't undergo eternal punishment. Or God is viewed primarily as vengeful and angry, as there are many popular conceptions of God, almost a God who's out to get you all of the time, or a God who is petty in his retribution for petty offenses from his weak and petty creatures. But that's not the God of Scripture. It's not the God of the Bible, and it's not the God revealed in Christ. Though he is holy and will uphold his justice and execute judgment on his creation and on the earth... It is never without an appeal to receive first his mercy and his grace and forgiveness. Even as Noah was a preacher of righteousness as he built the ark before God destroyed the world with a flood. And though he is certain to satisfy his holy justice, it is not without the tender appeal to receive from him the forgiveness of the one who bore that justice in our place on the cross in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though he requires repentance from his creatures, it is a response empowered by him to receive all of the benefits of Christ's obedience on our behalf. So he is holy and there is judgment and there is justice, but there is overflowing mercy and grace and hope and forgiveness that is always preceding any act of judgment. And so this morning we meet that same tender appeal in the person 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted Christ. Let me read for us, really beginning in verse 17 down to verse 20. And then we'll pick it up this morning in verse 18. Beginning in verse 17. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we noted last week in Christ's condemnation of the church and his exposure of their sin that they were living in a, they were living in a false view of themselves. They were, they were living blind to their true condition. And so Christ, as an act of mercy, reveals to them uh, their true state, their true condition before him. In the eyes of the world, they were blessed, they were wealthy, they were at ease, and in, most importantly, their own eyes, they were very self-satisfied, they were very comfortable with where they were in life, they, were, they mistook then their comfort in this world to be in a good position, that they were in a good position with Christ, they were in a good position with God, they were so blessed by God, how could they in any way come under his censure? But Christ reveals to them that it, this reality is very different than what they perceived. They thought they had need of nothing, and they were right in the sense of maybe earthly needs. They were not in want of a meal. They were not in want of clothing. And they certainly were not in want of the luxuries that the world had to offer at that time. But they were viewing things very wrongly. They were, in fact, in great need. They were in desperate need. But their need was not material. It was spiritual, the things they had neglected. They were, in fact, as we noted by the words of Christ, wretched, miserable, Poor, blind, and naked. And in coming to realize this condition, which is the end to which he's working, they would come to realize that their truest needs could not be gained by anything that they could accomplish. And sadly, this represents much of the church in our day and much of the church uh, really in Western culture and certainly in our country and certainly in our state. We have overwhelming comforts. We have overwhelming abundance. We have overwhelming satisfaction. We have endless resources to meet every fancy and desire and lust that comes to our mind. We have endless ways to entertain ourselves. We can go through life passively, indulging every desire of the flesh and of the mind and really have no sense of the urgency of the condition in which we truly stand. Why we will deal with these things much more in detail as we go down the road, and particularly as we enter into the heavenly scene of Christ, I would mention here, we have substituted true spiritual worship with personal feelings, with emotion, 
I've sat in class before when I was uh, in a particular seminar in which this person was a director of music at a large church. And in the course of our discussion, he noted that it was his mission he saw to create an environment that would give people an emotional experience. They used light, they used smoke, they used music, they used all of these external things to create an experience of worship. According to Christ, we could say you're not creating an experience of worship. By doing that, you are creating a false sense of meaning and relationship with God that in the end will unfortunately blind many all the way to destruction. It is what Jesus warned about when he said the road is wide that leads to destruction and the road is narrow that leads to life. The road of repentance, of self-denial, of exchanging our life for his. And yet this is the condition that we see all around us. But it is the condition that Christ in mercy is addressing. And so after giving a rather comprehensive look at the reality of our spiritual need outside of Christ, who we are in ourselves, their need to recognize truly spiritually where they were and what they needed, he gives this word of great and tender mercy. And this is the fourth part of his message beginning in verse 18. It is his call to repentance. It is his call to repentance. And as we noted, this really, interestingly, is one of the sweetest and most tender calls to repentance that he's given to any of the churches. And that stands out as a striking contrast because Laodicea, as we've noted many times, is the church that he has nothing good to say about. It's only negative. I mean, we can be assumed that there were some believers that were there, but he doesn't address them as he did at the church at Sardis. And yet, that being the desperate and dire situation that they're in, he gives to them this very, very tender word. And here we see the heart of God and the heart of Christ. Majestic in holiness and yet tender in his mercy. Let's note first then the mercy of Christ in this call. He says in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me. I advise you to buy from me. That with her, my advise has the idea of let's take counsel. It could be like, let's reason together. Let's consider this situation together. Come and talk to me, as it were, about this. Think about it. Listen to my counsel. It's an extremely humble and gentle invitation to repentance. It is indeed, in that simple statement, a picture of the infinite mercy of God, the tender mercy of Christ. Think of this. He is the one who is offended. It is him who is being betrayed. It is him who is being falsely worshipped. It is him who is being ignored by those who are claiming his name. It is him who is the offended one. And it's him who is offended who is the Lord of the church. It is him through whom and for whom all things were created. It's him who is the Alpha and the Omega. It's him before whom John fell down in his presence as a dead man, even though he belonged to him and was redeemed by him. This infinitely glorious one who is offended is the one reaching out in tender mercy. The grace of God is infinite. It is mercy. And it's beyond a mere human mercy. We can understand human mercy in a sense of somebody reaching out, though they were offended, and reaching out in kindness. But we can't begin to compare that ultimately in any 
ultimate and comprehensive way to the mercy of God just because of the nature of the situation. He is infinite and holy. He is the owner of all things. He is the potter and we are the clay. He is the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand by his sovereign power and glory. We don't have any of those conditions. And yet he does. And he is the one reaching out to us, these puny creatures who have offended him. And this isn't merely the heart of God in Christ, as if there were some different God of the Old Testament and new God and nice God of the New Testament. This is reflective of the mercy of God always to his people, whom he calls to repentance. Let me just remind you of one passage. We have in the book of Isaiah, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, an address of the prophet by God. So he is the mouthpiece of God speaking to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to the nation, not so much of Israel, the northern tribes, but the southern tribes of Judah. And he's bringing to them a message of judgment, a message of condemnation for their rejection of him, for their breaking of the covenant, for their covenant treachery, as it were. He compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, to the worst and the most morally corrupt nation that has been held up to us and before all humanity as being particularly perverse in their rejection of God and in their moral corruption. He says, you're my covenant people, but you're no better than them. And then he, he chides them for their multiple sacrifices to me. And he says, I don't even want them. He's commanded them to come and bring burnt offerings and to bring sacrifices and to bring themselves to the temple. And they're doing that religiously, but he's saying, I don't want that. As a matter of fact, when you bring these things, even that I have commanded, it is an offense to me. It is a stench in my nostrils. I cannot stand it anymore. As a matter of fact, he says, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assemblies. He says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. You are wicked. You are covenant treacher. You have committed covenant treachery. You have abandoned me. You are an apostate nation. Every Everything you do supposedly to honor me is actually an offense to me and it only arouses my anger and my wrath. And then he says this. We'd expect it to end there. Enough said. But he says, wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And then he says this. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. To a disobedient, hard-hearted people, he offers them the most tender invitation to come to him and think be reasonable and what will be the end of it he says he will turn from his wrath and rather than bringing judgment he will bring them to blessing rather than bringing condemnation he will bring them into a place of purity to a place of restored relationship to forgiveness of their sin he will give them hope he will bring them the benefits of the covenant he will be good to them if they would only consider and that's the same heart that's revealed here in Christ. 
He would be right to not be patient and wait to spit them out of the mouth. But he says, no, I, I advise you, I counsel you, I'm appealing to you. I'm coming to you to think about your ways. I, I want you to experience my fullness and not my, my wrath. And so he says, come, let us reason, let us counsel is the idea there. And he says, I advise you, my counsel to you, my advice to you is to buy from me. To buy from me. Now the imagery here is of a transaction. We buy something. However, the idea is not what we can give Christ and and him in repayment give back to us what we've earned or what we've bought in that sense. It's actually just the opposite. The idea of this transaction is not what we can give to him, but the idea is what we receive from him. What we receive from his hand. The emphasis is on the grace and what he's willing to give without cost, without charge, because the price has already been laid on him. One noted that the most important point of the verse is that the remedy in each case is something beyond their own vaunted resources and that we must obtain from Christ. In other words, to buy it from Christ is not to say that we... we, twist Christ's arm or obligate him in some way, it is to say we come to Christ and we want to receive from him what only he can give, what can only be found in him. And again, this is a mark of the wonderful and infinite mercy of God. And again, it reflects the words of God to his own disobedient people. Let me read to you from Isaiah 55. You're familiar with this. This gives the idea of what it means to buy from him. That it's not an exchange of our works, but it is a receiving what he has and freely offers without cost. Isaiah 55, he says, Ho, in other words, you could be like, behold, pay attention, listen. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. He's appealing to them to say, turn from your idolatry, turn from your trust in the things of this world, turn from those things that you're vainly and blindly grasping after to bring satisfaction to your soul, and receive it from me, who is your covenant God, the one whom alone you were made and formed for, and the one whom alone can satisfy your deepest longings. Sounds a lot like Christ, doesn't it? To the church at Laodicea and to us, to the church throughout the ages. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of God. The very last words of Scripture, in fact, reflect these same words. In Revelation 21, 6, he says, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. In chapter twenty-two, seventeen, 17, the last message of Scripture The last verses of the canon, he says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. So he's not saying here that somehow we can barter and make a deal. 
He's saying that you buy from me by merely coming from me and receiving the riches that I have to offer in myself. And this really, as does all of Scripture, just destroy the idea that many have that there is this this vengeful, mean, exacting, genocidal God of the Old Testament and this nice, kind, loving, accepting, gentle God of the New Testament. Christ who will spit them out of their mouth if they do not respond. Christ who will return in glory to judge is the same Christ who's offering tender mercy. The same God in the Old Testament who executed his justice to lead his people to faith is the same God who tenderly appealed to an apostate nation to come and drink of the riches of his mercy and grace. In both Old Testament and New Testament we have then the kindness and the severity of God. As Paul said, kindness to those who respond to him and severity to those who reject him. What does he offer? What he offers to us then is what he created us to be filled with. Himself. As a matter of fact, there is a famous quote, many of y'all will know this, from Augustine in his confessions when he's giving his auto, basically an autobiography of his life, his coming to faith and so forth. And he says this very early on in these confessions. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There's other variations, but that's a common translation. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In fact, many of the sinful pursuits of man is in reality only an expression of the restlessness of their heart. Vainly seeking after something that will satisfy it. How many have reached the top of their career or success, whether it be financial, whether it be athletics, whether it be whatever it is, only to reach the top or have all their dreams fulfilled and say, this is it? This is it? This is what I was pursuing? This is what I was after? It's empty. Because that's not what we were created for. And Christ says here, you're pursuing the wrong things. Come to me. You're going to be restless Until you find your rest in me. We were created in God's image to know him intimately. In the fellowship of love and obedience. Because of sin we're separated. Because of sin we know restlessness. Because of sin we know shame. Because of sin we feel that we are cut off really. And unable to obtain what we really want. We have turned God's good creation into idolatry. Into a a replacement for God. And our hearts are always hungering then for something, something that this world cannot offer. Calvin famously said in his Institutes, we may gather that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Always craving, always longing, always looking to substitute something for God. Always looking to find satisfaction somewhere else. But here Christ says, you can't. You can't find it in vain idols, but you can find it in me. So what are we to buy? What does he offer in himself? He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not, may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We are to buy and to receive from him everything that meets us in our wretched condition, our spiritual poverty, our misery, and our blindness. Everything that the convicted heart longs for. 
Now, here then it gets tricky then. Or at least it exposes what our true desires are. If we were to ask this church at Laodicea, or if we were to ask many in the church, if I were to ask you the simple question, what do you see or feel inside to be your greatest need? What do you actually, if you were to stop and to think about it, what would you say is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? Is it something that only Christ can give, that can only be found in Him? Or is the solution to your greatest need, your greatest want, something that you can achieve on your own? Or is it something that the world could give you, as if Christ never existed? That reveals what is going on in our heart. You see, how you see and experience your greatest need will determine where you'd go to meet that need. Where you see the fountain and resource to have that need satisfied. Here it is for them. They thought, as many do, that it could be satisfied with a mere cursory acknowledgement of Christ. But really by pursuing other things. And Christ says, I don't offer you other things. I offer you me. Now, his offer of what satisfies our greatest need is directly related to what he said their condition was, or our condition is. What he offers is something to meet the condition of wretchedness, misery, poverty, blindness, and nakedness. That's what he offers. And so, let's consider this. He says, I advise you, I counsel you, I am appealing to you to buy from me, to find in me and my person gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. As we've noted, he's likely drawing here on Laodicea's culture of wealth. They were a very affluent society that, that runs as a theme throughout all of his message to them. They had many comforts in this world. They were very well off in terms of material things. And he invites them, however, to take what are true riches, heavenly wealth, eternal riches, and eternal life in Christ. You see the... Material wealth had deceived them into thinking they were spiritually rich as well. But they didn't understand spiritual riches. That's why they could think they had them while they utterly lacked them. The implication there is you've never actually tasted them. You've never actually tasted the riches that are in Christ. So whatever drew you to be identified with the church at Laodicea, it wasn't the Christ that was supposedly represented there. Some version of them. And obviously the clear parallel in many ways in our day, well, there are many, but one would be the very church that offers the thing that Christ says are the very means of corrupting our soul, the wealth, the, the material prosperity. Those things that can so easily blind us and so much of those professing Christ come to what they view as the church to receive the very things that he warns about. But he says there's greater riches than that not merely is that deceiving and blind, but it's missing what is truly offered to you in him. Let me just remind you of one parable that reflects this. This is in Luke chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to mention it. You remember the parable? Somebody had asked Christ to arbitrate for family inheritance. And he says, you know, what do I have to do with you? And then he warns them about being uh, corrupted by greed. He says, be on your guard against every form of greed. And then he gives this parable of a rich man who had been very successful in life, who had many things for his comfort and for his pleasure and for his leisure. He had no wants. This would be the businessman who's highly successful, can retire 
retire at 40, have really no financial needs, has the freedom pretty much to do whatever he wants. And he says to himself, soul, you have many goods laid up for you for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy the fine things of life. It might even be a man who says, because God has blessed me so much with these things. But God said to him, you fool, that very night your soul is required of you, and now what? who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. There's wealth towards God is what we should be pursuing. And again, there is the deceit that thinks there is safety in earthly comforts without being rich towards God. And so here he says, though, you can be rich. You can receive from me something that is far greater than anything else you might own. It's the gold refined by fire. It is spiritual riches. What does he mean here by gold refined by fire? The gold here refined by fire is to say, by having a pure faith in Christ, you can come from me and receive from me a true connection to my glory through faith shaped by obedience. You can come to me and have the true riches that faith will open up to you if you would but exercise it towards me and towards the gospel. This is a common metaphor in scripture for faith. Let me remind you of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says to a persecuted church that they're rejoicing for a little while, though they've been distressed by various trials. He says, so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, and it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the dead. You haven't seen him, you love him, you believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And he's saying that's the kind of faith and that's the kind of outcome you can have. You can trust and exercise in me a true trust and through that know the riches that I have to offer you, every spiritual riches in the heavenly places. The idea here is that rather than find your security, satisfaction, identity, and meaning and wealth in the things the world can provide, which are unstable and will pass away, you can find true riches, true satisfaction, and true identity in Christ. It's very similar, if you'll remember, this is a church who we have explicit testimony, received the letter from Paul at Colossian, to Colossae, in which there he identifies that Christ is the one in whom all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. So what does it mean to be rich towards God? To be truly rich in Christ. It's to have forgiveness of your sin. Reconciliation with God. The ability to know him and to walk in righteousness. To have fellowship and suffering. Comforts and strength and trial. A refuge in trouble, a hope in despair, rest in his sovereign care when we can't see what the future holds and we worry. Those are the kind of riches. The kind of riches that can look at the kingdom of Christ secured by him and say every promise is yes and amen in Christ. Those are true riches. Those are true riches. And that's what he offers. And again, what we pursue as true riches will reveal the condition of our heart. If we prioritize the things this world can offer, the security it offers, then it would be what Paul says is a mindset on the flesh. A mindset on this world. Speaking of an unbeliever in Romans 8. But if you pursue heavenly riches in Christ, spiritual riches of worship, salvation, nearness to God, 
Then that reveals the character of those who have their minds set on the things of the Spirit, who have found their treasure in Christ, and who count everything in this world lost that he might be gained. That's what it is. And again, it's not a matter of wealth. I know we've said this, but let me mention it again. It's not simply a matter of wealth. It's a matter of our heart attitude towards these things. It's not a matter of taking a vow of poverty. It is a matter of seeing our life and all that we have gladly and joyously given to God to use for as He wishes. It's the heart attitude. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches because that's what wealth causes us to want to do. He says, but on God, who richly surprised us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In other words, enjoy whatever God gives us to enjoy, but enjoy it ultimately in the advantage it gives to serve His kingdom, to serve others, to be rich in good works, to be bountiful and generous in what we give for the purpose of the kingdom. That's the idea. And so he says, you need to redefine what true riches is, and I advise you to buy from me that which is truly valuable which is eternal, which is a spiritual. Does that meet your greatest longing? That's the question. Does it meet your greatest longing? Does that connect with what you see to be your greatest need? Or how about his next promise in him? You can have true spiritual riches and you can also have white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And again... The background here is most likely Laodicea's wool industry. It was known for its rich black color and the garments that were produced from it. And he's making a contrast here and saying, Rather than those things, I offer to you something of true value and comfort. Garments that I will give. Garments that I will clothe you in. White garments. What are white garments? What are these? What does white mean? Well, in reference to Christ, it's as, as the connote, well, in, the connote, in Revelation, it has the idea, it has the connection with what is holy and what is pure. Remember, Christ's hair is white like wool. He rides on a white horse. God is going to sit on a great white throne of judgment on the last day. It has the idea of purity and holiness. Believers are clothed in white. The 24 elders in chapter 4 are clothed in white garments. The saints that are awaiting the resurrection are given white robes. Those who come out of the tribulation are clothed in white robes. Those who return with the Lord will be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. What does he offer here then in those white robes? It is to be this, simply clothed in his righteousness that produces works of righteousness. Those are the white garments. The white garments are a reflection of the righteousness in Christ shown by the righteousness of their life. He makes this explicit in Revelation. In chapter 6, verse 11, it was given to each of them a white robe that they should rest a little longer until the rest of the brethren were killed. In chapter 7, verse 9, he 
He says, I looked and behold a great number. They were standing. They were clothed in white robes. It were these who were faithful to the end. These who were faithful to the end. Those who have, in verse 14, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God to serve Him night and day in His temple. They had come to know and believe in the atoning work of Christ. It was His righteousness. It was His righteousness in which they were standing. And so they are saying, you are naked, which was to say essentially that you are filled with the shame of your sin before God that you do not see. But you can remove that shame before God and be clothed in garments that Christ can give. Garments of righteousness. Garments of Christ's righteousness. And be shown in the righteous works that you produce, that it produces. Their works were empty and worthless because they lacked the clothing of Christ's righteousness. They, they lacked a true knowledge of him. And so they were bad trees that could only produce bad works. They were empty vessels that could only produce empty works. And Christ is saying, if you get that, if you understand it, I can change that condition and give you those things that truly matter. These white garments then cover the nakedness of your shame so it will not, or the shame of your nakedness so it won't be revealed. This is pretty significant too when you consider that the shame of their nakedness and the shame of our nakedness is covered by Christ and the white garments he gives because he bore that shame for us. How much shame did he go through Though he was innocent, holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, without sin. And yet he was the one who was held up, weak and bruised and broken before a nation who rejected him. He was mocked by those who bore his own image and whom he had created, the Roman soldiers. He was hung on a cross, naked, without clothes, to be shamed in the most shameful way to be nailed in the most painful way to the cross, to be held up for all those at the bottom to mock. He bore our shame. Why? So that we would never have to bear shame before Him. He bore shame before men so that we would never have to bear our shame before God. So that we would never have to stand before God ashamed in ourselves because we can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But if you're in a church like Laodicea and you're in that condition, that's really a pretty empty kind of promise, isn't it? Until you feel the shame of your nakedness, the idea of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ will be a nice idea, but not necessarily what I search for and hunger for. But it is what he offers. And it's the kind of, the kind of honor that he offers is to be clothed in his righteousness. He knew the joy set before him, and so despising the shame, he gave himself up on the cross for us. And for a Christian, and for those who truly have come by this work of the Spirit of God in them, to feel before God our need to be clothed by something that we don't have in ourselves, the offer of Christ is that I will clothe you. I will cover you. I will not be ashamed to call you my brethren, he said in Hebrews. I will not be ashamed to announce your name before my Father on that last day. I won't be ashamed. 
It's really the final provision that was anticipated in the garden. Remember? Adam and Eve sinned. They felt shame. They went from naked and unashamed to speak of their holiness, the purity and the righteousness of that relationship and that humanity at that point. And then sin entered in and they were shamed and they were ashamed of their nakedness. They were ashamed to be in the presence of each other. They were ashamed to be before God. And so they hid. But what did God do? He called them out. He sought them and he clothed them with garments to cover their nakedness, ultimately anticipating the true covering that would come in Christ through garments of his righteousness. And here he says, you can, you can know what it means to not be ashamed before God. How much shame is in this world? How much shame people carry because of sin, either that they have committed or sin done against them. And Christ says all of that can be wiped away. You can have a covering that will last through all of eternity that he provides. And then he says next, and finally, you will have eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And again, he's drawing here from Laodicea, uh, renowned for being a medical center, and particularly they were known for an eye salve. It was called a Figurian powder. It was put into a little uh, vessel, and it was put on the eyes, and it was supposed to help heal them and to be a benefit for them. One describes it this way. It was a coarse bread, cylindrical in shape. The elongated lump was impregnated with medicines and used as a bandage for sore or weak eyes. And that's what they were known for. And he's most certainly drawing from that kind of imagery. And he's saying far more than some kind of salve for your physical eyes, you need restoration of physical sight that I can give you spiritual sight that comes with a new heart. Christ is saying to this recalcitrant and church and oblivious to their blindness to receive from him true sight then, spiritual sight, that will remove the veil. That will remove the veil. He's saying you can have true sight. You can go from being blind to being seen. From being in darkness to seeing the light. It's the ability then first to see their true condition. And so you think, how do I know if I'm blind? And it's an obvious answer in this context. You know if you're blind by whether you truly can see yourself as wretched. You know if you're blind whether you know that you're by yourself or in the darkness. You know you're blind that in your sin you are in a miserable condition. You know you're blind if you can leave unaffected with the... Uh, any time in God's word or under the preaching of his word or the singing of his word or the praying of his word and leave unaffected in your soul and live for the world and think you're at church and so you're okay, then you're blind is his warning. But he says it doesn't need to stay that way. You can be seen. You can be seen. How do you know if you're blind? It's, it's whether... You see your condition and you see God's glory revealed in Christ. It's that simple. How do you know if you're blind? And how do you know if you're seen? Whether you truly look to Christ to find all that your soul wants and all that you desire. How do you know if you're blind or if you're seen? What is your experience of reading Scripture? Not to say that it's perfect all the time. We all have ups and downs and seasons. But in general and at its base, what is your experience of reading Scripture? Do you read Scripture? Do you read your Bible? 
How many of you, if anyone, could leave your Bible at church on Sunday and not know it until next Sunday or morning when you're getting ready? How many can go and be satisfied with so little intake of his word? Or how many of you read it and find it absolutely boring or uninteresting or confusing? I never understand what it means. It's just this words. Then that would be what the writers of scripture identify as having a veil over your eyes. And a veil over your heart. But the one who has had that veil removed reads scripture and it's a very different situation, isn't it? It's coming in the presence of God. It's hearing the authority and the sufficiency of God revealed. It's seeing his glory in a way that it actually addresses the true condition of our soul. Where it actually meets the things that we want. It actually informs us in the way we think about the world and our own life. It actually comforts us when we are in trouble. It actually gives us hope when we have sinned and can turn back again to the promises of God in Christ. It actually produces in us spontaneous worship and fellowship. In other words, it is the living word to those who hear the voice of the living Christ and who have the living spirit within them. To use the language of Paul, it says this, when the veil is taken away by the spirit, there is liberty. And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Have you ever cried out to God... And said, the greatest thing that I want, oh God, is just Christ. I just want Christ. I want to know him. I want to know him in truth, not in name. Have you ever had that? Now, we wish we could live there. None of us do. We will in heaven. But have you ever had that? Does that in any way define the reality of who you are in your inner person when you say, what do I need? Have you ever just bowed your head before God and said, I just need Christ. I just need him. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to know who he is. I want him to have control of my life in every way. I want to submit to him and I just hate every rebel lust in me. That's what he's calling to. But quite frankly, that kind of Christ will be boring and uninteresting to those who do not see wretchedness, misery, and poverty, and blindness as their natural condition outside of him. Who do not taste the reality of that condition remaining in them because of the principle of sin that causes you to forever run again to Christ. But if you do... No matter how deep your sin has taken you, no matter how much shame you feel in this world and before God, no matter how much you abhor the hardness and blindness in your heart, you can know that Christ offers grace and mercy. He doesn't turn you away. It's the same Christ who stood before the crowds and said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we are in the depths of our sin, what is the natural response of our hearts sometimes is to not go to God. To feel distance. I can't. I'm too ashamed. There's too much hypocrisy in my heart. There's too much duplicity in my motives. I can't do it. That's the exact opposite of what he offers. He says, I offer you infinite mercy. Though your garments are like stained garments with sin... I offer to clothe you with white garments of my righteousness. 
to restore you to a place where you can live in the power and the freedom of the righteousness that I purchased for you. That's what he offers. He offers himself. And he never turns away any sincere request to know him and to be forgiven. He never does that. Now, believers, those who are truly regenerate, can know these longings. That's why I asked that question earlier. But if you've never known peace and joy in Christ and truth, then you surely cannot miss it, can you? You see, only a believer can experience the loss of fellowship because only a believer has ever tasted the mercy of fellowship. Only a believer can feel the burden of their sin on them and cry out to Christ because they've known what it was like to have the sweetness of walking in truth and a clear conscience through the cross. And he says, I offer that to you, but only to those who see the need for what I offer. But if you do, he never fails to give it. He never fails to give it. Precious promises. Precious promises. So what do you want from Christ? And we'll wrap up these promises next week. But let me just at least say this. He says in verse 19, Those whom I love I reprove and I discipline and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Because Christ is so full of love, because he's so full of mercy, because he's so full of tender affection for his people, he rebukes us. And he disciplines us. And he chastens us. And he brings us trials. That's what he's saying here. I'm speaking to you in this way because I have an affection for you. Because I love you. And because you need to be broken down before you can be built up in Christ. You need to come to the end of yourself before you can know the riches and the fullness that I offer in myself. And that's what needs to happen. So if we neglect that convicting work of the Spirit in our heart, if we neglect the convicting realities of God's Word as it exposes us, then we are also cutting ourselves off from the riches of the blessing that are in Him. This, this is a side note, is the danger of a lot of modern psychology. When sin is relabeled as weakness and illness, disease... The gospel doesn't answer any of those things. Modern psychology does. Medicine does. Therapy does. But when you see that the real issue in your heart is a natural inborn rebellion to God, and that's not the whole discussion about it, but that's at the heart of it. But when you see that the real condition of anxiety so often and depression and worry and anger and uncontrolled responses to emotions and those kind of things aren't some kind of disease, you're not a victim, but they are in fact the reality of your fallen condition. They need not medication, but they need grace and forgiveness. Again, that's not the whole of the discussion, but that's at the heart of it. That's the starting point. And so if we, we define all of our needs in terms of felt needs, if we define all of our needs in terms of earthly attainment, if we define all of our needs in terms of our own self-worth and self-actualization or whatever, then Christ is of no benefit. He doesn't offer himself for any of those things, not in truth. 
But if we define our need as he sees our need, our wretchedness, our misery, our poverty and sin, our blindness and our nakedness, then he says, that I have an answer for. That I have an answer for. And it's called grace, forgiveness. It's called myself. It's called reconciliation. It's called the comforts of the spirit. It's called hope. It's called this persevering grace as you walk through whatever trial, as you battle with whatever sin, as you face whatever you face. What I offer you is myself. That's the Christ that is laid before us and is laid before them. And that's the Christ we want to make sure we present. But it begins with knowing our need so that he can fulfill that true need that our souls really long for. And indeed, it is true that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And his rebuke is meant to lead us there. And the table is meant to remind us that these promises that are in Christ have been accomplished. The table is for believers who have trusted in Christ. It's for believers who are walking obediently with Christ or seeking to. And that means that when you're not, you're confessing sin. You're not, it means for a believer that you're not harboring any known sin that you're not doing battle with. It doesn't mean that you might not fail 10, 15, 100 times next week. Hopefully not. But it does mean this, that whatever failure in battle that you're battling it, you know it's sin and you're turning to Christ, you're turning to Christ, you're turning to Christ. The table is for you. The table is for you to remind you that grace has already been won. And there's grace to help you, not only for forgiveness, but there's the fullness of grace And the reality of grace is to move that forgiveness to the fear of God and the desire to honor Him. If you are outside of Christ and you're just a religionist or you're not really sure because you don't really identify with these things, then the table is not for you. If you've not been baptized in obedience to Christ as a believer, then you need to think about that as well. But for those of us who look to Christ as our hope, the table is for you. And so now as we take these elements, take some time as the men pass it out to pray. Ask the Lord to search your heart. Ask him to not merely search your heart for sin, but to remind you of who he is and what he's done for us. To remind you of the fullness of his grace. To ask him to cause you to love him more and to strengthen you by faith. So I'll pray and the men will come forward and then we'll... Pass out the elements. Father, thank you for for giving us these promises. Help us to live in reality of our true needs. Lord, we know that we have needs of food and clothing. We know that we have all kinds of needs and for your help in this world. But the greatest need that we have, the most fundamental need that we have, is to be in right relationship with you. To be walking with you in the light as you are in the light. To be walking in fellowship with you and with your, with your church, your true church. To be living before you in your word. To be seeking you in prayer. These are our greatest needs. Remind us of them and help us to walk in true wisdom. And for those who are outside of you and your grace, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.